Uh, we are actually looking at this uh, part, the final victory and the last judgment. Uh, that's what we see from chapter 19, verse 1, to chapter 20, verse 15. Uh, in fact, uh, this is the, you know, we can put the title as the heavenly warrior defeats the beast. Uh, this is the ultimate climax of the book. If you have seen all that has happened so far, uh, this is what people were waiting. If they, you know, if somebody read the book of Revelation, uh, the people who heard the book, they were waiting for this particular scene. What's going to happen now? What's going to happen now? What's going to be happen in the final war? Because they have been waiting right from Revelation chapter one verse seven. Look, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Now, whatever has happened before this, whatever the judgments we heard, uh, they're all just, uh, we call it as preludes. We can call it as uh, previews. Uh, we can call it as a trailer. All that has happened so far is just a glimpse of what's exactly going to happen when the king of kings, when he comes on a white horse. Uh, that's why I said this is the ultimate climax of the book and people were waiting and the riot. John, uh, now he presents the final scene and that's his presenting from uh, 19, chapter 19 was one, uh, 11 onwards to chapter 21, verse 1. Ch chapter 19, verse 11, to chapter 21, verse 1. He's presenting seven visions in rapid succession because we find, I saw, I saw, I saw, that's what. So we are going to see the first vision that's in chapter 19, verse 11. Uh, keep in mind, there are seven visions like this. It will all come in rapid succession. And this is the ultimate climax of the book. And this is the first vision. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. This is the ultimate holy war. This is the war. After this, there's not going to be any more war. Uh, so this is the ultimate war, and this is a war that has been anticipated in the Old Testament. It is not that has come all of a sudden, right from, uh, if you read right from Genesis onwards, you know, from Genesis chapter 3 onwards, we are all waiting for that ultimate war, and we are all waiting what is going to happen to Satan, that serpent that dragon, what's going to happen to Satan? That, that's what we are waiting, and that's what's going to happen now. And he says, uh, there was a white horse, and he is called faithful and true, and with justice, he judges and wages war. Uh, as I told last uh, Wednesday, I, I just touched, I said Roman princes, uh, customarily they rode white horses 
in military triumphs. If they have won, if they have become victorious, then they'll come on the white horses. And I said the Emperor Domitian, uh, he rode a white horse behind his dad after they defeated uh, Jerusalem uh, in the Jewish war of 66 to 70. Now, right now, Domitian is the king, emperor of Rome. Now, John is presenting God as a warrior God. And the people who heard the story, they were, they were very clear. If you say white horse, you don't have to explain to them. They know, you know whoever comes on the white horse is the victor. And that is the presentation. That's the image uh, John is uh, presenting. And John is also using a lot of Old Testament references, Old Testament imagery, because in the Old Testament, God has already always been portrayed as a warrior who fights on behalf of his people. God is a warrior God. He fights. Even today, God fights for you and me, provided we have the discernment and wisdom to hand over our battles to him. There are certain battles we have to handle. There are certain battles we have to just hand it over to him. We should not even try to you know, co-pilot. When we have the discernment, God fights our battles. And uh, he's taking images from the Old Testament because in Isaiah 31.4, it says, this is what the Lord says to me. As a lion growls, a great lion over its prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion on its heights. Nothing is going to disturb the Lord. He is powerful. Any number of kings can come against him, but he is the king of kings and nothing will disturb. And that's the image. You know, though a whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it is not frightened by their shouts are disturbed by their clamor. And that's the way uh, the Lion of Judah will fight the final battle. So we go to the, this is the first vision. Now we are following the first vision. I saw, I saw. Keep in mind, he judges and wages war. God himself will fight the war. God himself. And in this place, it is Jesus. So Jesus is God. Old Testament, we saw God will fight. And in the New Testament, it will be Jesus. Jesus is God. We go to the next verse. Uh, his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. On his head are many crowns. Explain. Is there any significance on his head or many crowns?
Now for you and me, um, it'll, it is, you know, to be crowned with more than one crown, uh, it appears to be a strange picture. I also tried to see that uh, is there somebody who was wearing two crowns I couldn't make out. Uh, for us, it's very strange. How can somebody wear many crowns on one head? Uh, it appears very strange. Uh, but it says, you know, the history says in John's time, it was not uncommon for a king to wear more than one crown, uh, just in order to show that he is a king of more than one nation. So the, that's the picture we have here. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. So that means he is a king over many nations. Uh, that's the meaning of this phrase. And it says he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Is it not a mystery? That no one knows his name? In fact, we have also seen a similar kind of reference uh, in chapter two, if I remember, no one knows but he himself. We have also come across this, uh, this sentence earlier. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself with a slight variation. We have seen this in chapter two. Uh, basically what John is telling us on his head, uh, he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Basically he's saying that no one has power over him. Uh, ancient magicians claimed that they could force spirits once they knew their names. Um, so it is not good for us to tell our names to everybody. Uh, that's, that's the way the ancient magicians, uh, they, uh, they claim. Uh, we, we have this reference in Revelation 2.17, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Uh, in other words, uh, he has power. Nobody has power over him. Not only no one has power over God, or lamb, no one will have power over his children, God's children. Uh, that's why we have in 2.17, those who have been faithful, I will give them a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Uh, the world will not have power over God or God's children. We go to the next verse. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The rider who is the conquering Christ is dressed in a robe dipped 
in blood. Uh, again, we, we go back to the Old Testament. There is a reference to this. Uh, if we go to Isaiah chapter 63, there is a reference uh, to a robe dipped in blood. Uh, who is this coming from Edom? We find in Isaiah chapter 63, 1 to 3. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bozra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this? Robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength. It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red? like those of one treading the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. Uh, <clears throat> basically, if we see Isaiah chapter 63, uh, it is talking about the conqueror's garments are stained with the blood of his Edomite enemies. Uh, that, that, that's what the reference in 63. And John is using this imagery to apply to Jesus, to portray the gospel of Christ who triumphed by shedding his own blood. He's basically using a Old Testament imagery in the New Testament context, uh, referring to the sacrifice Jesus made for us on the cross. And he's saying, and then he says, his, his name is the word of God. Uh, basically, you cannot call this as a proper name. Uh, it is basically, uh, it is the, it is his office, the word of God. Because in Hebrews chapter one to two, we hear God has finally spoken to us uh, through his son. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom we appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Uh, some of us may have the doubt because quite often you hear people, God told me this, God told me that, uh, because here we see in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, what's the difference between this reference and what we hear of, you know, God told me, God, God spoke to me. What's the difference between these two? Is there a difference? Because in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Uh, in other words, the final revelation has come through Christ and that is it, that's it. Because earlier he was speaking through prophets at many times and in various ways. Now the son has come and that's final. So what's the difference? What's the difference when you hear, when people say, God told me this, and uh, in the scripture, when you read this one, is there a difference or no difference? Maybe to mean that God spoke through the word of God, because son, like Jesus himself is the word of God. God spoke through the word of God. 
Uh, okay. So God has given us the final word through Jesus Christ. No, the way the way of salvation is spoken to us. You know, but uh, there's no extra uh, revelation. Uh, you know that is that should be accepted. Yes, Pastor. Yeah, basically, the no one has the scriptural authority. When God spoke, it is applicable to all, and we don't question the authenticity, the authority. Today, if anyone says that God is telling me, I know God is telling you to do this, and if you hear from somebody, you don't have to hear that. You can always listen, think, examine. That's why you know, in the Bible it says, examine all the spirits. No one has the scriptural authority. The scripture is complete now. With Jesus Christ, it is complete. Uh, they cannot say it's the word of God. God could have impressed on their hearts certain things, but it doesn't have the scriptural authority. When we don't obey scripture, uh, we are taken into account. But when somebody says, God told me this, and we find it, oh, I don't think so. And if you don't obey, we are not going to be punished. Uh, that's the that's meaning. The, the, scripture, the scripture is over. The revelation is over. And that's why if somebody says, uh, no, it's a little bit left, and this is what God said, and all, uh, that, that is all adding to the scripture, and no one has that authority. Uh, that's, so we go to the, and Revelation also speaks that one. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. That's final, final. The word of God is final. Uh, we go to the next verse. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Following Christ are the armies of heavens and they are riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, and white and clean. Now, the armies of seven, uh, heaven is not a new term. We find it in the Old Testament, and there are several references about the armies of heaven. For example, in 2 Kings 6, 17, it says, And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hill full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Uh, we see in, there are several references. I'm just quoting three. Isaiah 66, 15, see the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Uh, then Jeremiah, I'm quoting different authors. Uh, Jeremiah 4.30, look, he advances like the clouds. His chariots come like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Oh, to us, we are ruined. Now, what is the difference between the way the armies of heaven were sometimes revealed in the Old Testament. I've just given you examples in all these three cases. 
and in Revelation 19.14. Is there a difference? If there is a difference, what is the difference? And why is the difference? That they're on white horses now, like because of the victory that came because okay. of Jesus' sacrifice. Okay, white horses. Other than that, yes, white horses. Maybe those people riding those horses are believers, and the uh, Old Testaments are having armies of angels. Believers and angels, okay. There's no mention of chariots here, unlike yes, yes. Uh, in all the Old Testament reference, you find chariots and you find chariots, you find as chariots come, but here we find riding on white horses, no chariots in Revelation 19 14. Uh, is there a significance? Uh, is there a meaning to it? Or there's no meaning? Chariots is missing in Revelation, whereas in Old Testament, invariably, we find chariots. Is there any re um, relevance? Or we can just overlook it. Okay, we'll see that. Uh, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in wine, uh, fine linen, white and clean. Uh, the armies of heaven were, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, they were pictured as chariots in the Old Testament, whereas in the New Testament or in the book of Revelation, they are riding on white horses. Now, John and his readers were very familiar with the Parthian armies. And Parthians, they generally, they rode on horses. And uh, whenever this, if the, if the Roman Empire, if they were scared of one army, that was the Parthian army. And John is basically uh, making use of uh, that imagery. In other words, in the Old Testament time, uh, the chariots uh, were supposed to be in the most aggressive form that they could know. Uh, like, you know, in, in 2000 or late, late 2000, 2010, uh, if you are going to talk about a, a war, uh, you know, they will talk in terms of helicopter gunship. Uh, now, even helicopter gunship has become outdated. Now, probably they'll talk about coming on a spaceship and nuking the, you know, dropping the nuclear bombs. That's the kind of, uh, that's the way we, the world has advanced in terms of warfare. So in the Old Testament time, chariots were considered to be like helicopter gunship. And in John's time, white horses had that, you know, that kind of relevance. If white horses mean, it is the Parthian army, and they were sure they were they were superior to uh, Rome, 
And the readers, they knew if they are coming on white horses, that means victory belongs to them. That, that's the way uh, John is using this imagery. Now, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Interestingly, uh, the, you know, Christ was described as uh, the one, uh, he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. But if you see the followers are the armies of heaven, it could be saints, it could be angels, whoever it is, they're all dressed in fine linen, white and uh, clean. Now, this is where sometimes people misinterpret the verses and um, they, they generally feel that the saints are also required to fight this war. And uh, using such references, uh, if you read about the Crusades and all that, uh, Christians killed Muslims. And uh, they also killed Jews, they killed women, they killed children, and they just, uh, and, and for all this, they took authority from the Bible because of their wrong understanding of the verse. But as we go through, we will realize this war is going to be uh, fought only by one person. It's by God. The, though it says the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, they are dressed in fine linen, white and clean. They are not going to fight the war. God has not asked his followers to fight the war, but God has asked his followers to do something else. Instead of doing that, if we, if we misunderstand these verses, there'll be more violence. In fact, if you read some of the incidences that has happened, in fact, right now in the States, you have the white supremacists, the Aryan supremacy, you can call it, uh, there is a group and the kind of violence they've indulged in, it is documented how they've killed a eight-year-old girl and how they've sexually abused a five-year-old boy, all, all you know, holding Bible on one hand and indulging in such criminal activities because of their wrong understanding of the word of God. That's the reason it's important for us to study the word of God rightly. Uh, uh, otherwise, there's no difference between the worldly people and godly people. Now, some of the people may quote uh, from the Psalm 149, 6 to 9, they quote as authority, an authority for the people to go and fight the war. But let me uh, say it emphatically that God is not asking his followers to fight the war. Rather, he says, you become martyrs. But the final war will be fought by Jesus and Jesus alone. We, if at all we follow, we will be just following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. If we have to fight a war, we will have something in our hand. There's nothing in our hand. So the war will be fought by the uh, Lion of Judah. Uh, because we have already seen 
in the very same chapter, if you remember verses 7 and 8, for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who is his bride? His church, his followers. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. So, um, followers of Jesus, they execute no violence. The Bible does not condone violence, and more so, the followers of, followers of Jesus have never been instructed to resort to violence. It is Jesus, the mighty warrior, who strikes the wicked. It is Jesus. Uh, judgment to avenge is mine. It is not for us. God will do in his own way. Uh, because the biblical prophets, they themselves predicted God himself has the ultimate holy warrior. This is just a one-man warrior, war, God alone. But do you think God needs our help to fight this war? No, not at all. He's God, King of kings, Lord of lords. And he has many crowns on his head. Uh, he doesn't want us to indulge in violence. Uh, he is the ultimate holy warrior, and he is cloaked for war. You read the Old Testament, we'll see that he is dressed for war. I have given the reference Isaiah 59, 17, and uh, we saw that including the blood of the wine press. That's his dress, the, the blood of Jesus. Uh, so Jesus assumes whatever has been mentioned in the Old Testament about God, Jesus assumes this divine role here. Jesus is God. The disciples had no doubt, and John the Apostle has no doubt that Jesus is God. Uh, we go to the next verse. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Uh, this we have already seen in the initial vision. If you, re if you remember Revelation 1.16, in his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. And that's the image. Uh, John is using even in this uh, place. Um, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. We should always uh, understand the power of the word of God. There's, there is life in the word of God. Um, to what extent we allow the word of God to do all its functions, I'm not sure. But the Bible is very clear. This war will be fought with the word of God. And word of God has power to convict us. As we read the word of God, uh, the word of God should convict us. If we are people filled with the spirit, uh, the one, of the, one of the way we know that the spirit of God dwells in us is when the word of God convicts us. Uh, it doesn't matter uh, for how long we have been Christian and how old we are. The word of God will continue to convict us till the last breath. Uh, we are redeemed sinners, but 
It doesn't mean that we are perfect. It doesn't mean that we are without sin. The more we read the word of God, when the word of God shines into our hearts, we see those dark places and it's a privilege for us to be convicted so that we realize there's something wrong with us. And the, the, then we are convinced, yes, there's something wrong. Uh, we, that is why there is no, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we are convicted, we are not condemned. So the word of God also exonerates us. They, you know, it just forgives. Uh, that's why we ask God to forgive us every day. We have sinned knowingly or unknowingly. And to, a, to the greater extent, to the extent we allow the word of God to convict us, to that extent, the spirit of God is alive in our lives. We should never be discouraged. Uh, because conviction is there only for God's people. Uh, otherwise, you know, people will keep reading the Bible and nothing happens. It's a textbook. Uh, it becomes a word of God when the word of God truly, truly convicts us and it convinces us. Yes, yes, there is a dark spot in me. And then we know that in Jesus that has been forgiven. That's the gospel message. And that gives us joy. Uh, because we are not people who will be condemned. Uh, we are people, we are becoming more like Jesus with the passing of each day. And that is the power of the word of God, of his mouth was a, coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Uh, right in the Old Testament, uh, we find this kind of references. Uh, in Hosea chapter 6, 5, it says the, the words of God's mouth as a sword. Uh, therefore, therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. I killed you with the words of my mouth. In other words, the word of God is like a sword. Uh, that is there in Hosea. And uh, in, in Isaiah, it says that God's commandment is like a rod. Uh, but with the righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. The commandments of God will be like the rod of his mouth. Uh, you know, Isaiah also talks about the word of God like a sharp sword. Uh, he says in Isaiah 49.2, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and consulted me in his cure. Uh, so God's sword is also described as his instrument of judgment. The word of God will condemn people, will judge people. Uh, God's people, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ uh, Jesus. So God will bring about his final judgment. Uh, that's what we see in Isaiah 66, 15 to 16. See, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people. And many will be those slain by the Lord. Judgment on all people. God will execute judgment on all people. Sword, 
basically denotes authority. Uh, it is the Roman, uh, Roman symbol of an authority's right over somebody's life. You know, the soldier had a sword and he could threaten anyone, I'm going to kill you. So it shows that kind of authority. And that's what we find in the Old Testament. The word of God has authority. And that's what is presented even in the book of Revelation. So we go to the next verse. Um, the word of God is important. It is important for all of us. We have been asked to witness. Uh, we, we are supposed to witness with the word of God. That is important. That is the role we have. We are not supposed to carry the sword and kill people. Uh, we are not supposed to indulge in violence. The way uh, Christ, even today, as I said, there are sects uh, who claim themselves to be Christians and they think it is their duty to bring about, to execute this judgment. That's totally wrong. And uh, the, the Bible doesn't sanction uh, that kind of violence. And we need to be careful. We are not supposed to indulge in violence. So we go to the next verse on his robe and on his thigh. He has the same written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, this, is, this was not strange for the hearers of John's time. So he says on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <clears throat> what we find in the next part, that's from verses 17 to 21, the defeat of the wicked. That's what will take place from verses 17 to 21. Uh, we see the next two verses, 17 and 18. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Now, if you remember in this chapter, we saw about uh, you know, the wedding banquet. That's one is hosted for God's people. Uh, that's what we saw in the earlier part from verses 7 to 9. There was a feast for God's holy people, the wedding feast. Now, there is one more feast. That's for the birds flying in midair. And John sees an angel standing in the sun and who calls the birds flying in midair come together for the great supper of God. Uh, basically, John is using a Old Testament uh, reference. Uh, if, you, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 39, uh, this kind of reference is there after the final battle with Gog, uh, Gog and Magog. And uh, this particular reference is there after the final battle with Gog. As I told you in the beginning, John is well versed with the Old Testament. And he's just using the Old Testament symbols. If we have to interpret the book of Revelation without the Old Testament, we'll only come with our own interpretations. And we, we might think we are right, but we are not right. 
because for John, it's he's full of Old Testament. So Ezekiel 39, 17 to 20, son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says, call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals, assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I'm preparing for you, the great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as if they were rams and lambs, goats and bulls, all of the fattened animals from Basha. At the sacrifice I'm preparing for you, you will eat fat till you are glutted and drink blood till you are drunk. At my table, you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers of every kind, declares the sovereign Lord. Uh, I was just thinking to myself, if you have to give such a reference to a vegetarian and a non-Christian, uh, he will think, my goodness, I just don't want this God. Uh, there is so much of violence. You will eat flesh and drink. I, I don't want to do that unless uh, you know, you're able to explain what is an imagery and what is a reality. For that first, we should be convinced these are the pictures uh, which are only symbols. Uh, it doesn't actually say that, you know, you, we will eat flesh and drink blood. It, it doesn't mean like that. So <clears throat> basically it's talking about ultimate destruction. The evil power, there, there's going to be a final battle with God and Satan and Satan will be defeated thoroughly. He'll be defeated. Basically, talking about ultimate destruction of the evil one. And this gives encouragement to the Christians who are presently undergoing persecution. I'll come to that a little later. Uh, this is just, it's comforting for those who are facing or living under those circumstances. So you can, you know, John's book has a lot of contrast. So you can contrast uh, the marriage uh, supper of the lamb and with this kind of uh, meal. Uh, we go to the next verse. That's in 19. Uh, it says, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Basically, the war is against the rider on the horse. The beast and the kings of the earth. This is the end time. Um, and it is basically the beast and the kings of the earth. It's not even talking about the general population. It is talking about people who will be against the king, against Christ. It will be the beast and the kings of the earth or those who have authority, those who have power. And, that, and as I said, this is the great conflict, great war that takes between good and evil. And uh, they all come face to face with Christ. Uh, you know, now we would all like to know the details about the war. And John is not interested in giving us details. So if we try to find out details from these verses, 
and we try to interpret this represents this and that will go wrong because it is not there in the text. John basically wants to tell us there's going to be a final war and in the final war, the evil will be destroyed. The dragon will be destroyed. That is his idea. And he is not giving us any details about the battle, how this battle will go, how they will fight, what will all happen. No, he is not telling us the details. If somebody is telling us, it will be interesting for us. And we will think it's true, but it is not true because it's not in the text. All that John wants to tell us is only the result. He wants, he's just telling us the result. In the end, the enemies of Christ will be defeated and they'll be defeated roundly. They will be defeated thoroughly, they'll be defeated. They just have no other way. They'll just be opened by Christ and Christ is the victor. Now, so it is now what happens? The beast will be captured and not only the beast will be captured, the false prophet will also be captured. We have, we have seen in chapter 13 and all, unless you have the mark of the beast, you cannot do anything in this world. But what's going to happen to the beast? The followers of Christ will refuse to have the mark and John is telling what's going to happen to the beast because people were just thrilled and they were excited by the signs and wonders, the beast and the prophets, they did. They were excited, but ultimately John is telling this beast will be captured and the false prophet will also be captured. It's all representing the evil power, the, the Rome, the evil power and all kinds of evil things that are going on. That's what it represents. So both are thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That's what we will be seeing in the next verse. So what we find in the next verse in 2021, um, uh, John has already told us what's going to be the result. Then in the next verse, he's going to tell what's going to happen to the beast and the false prophet. What's going to happen to them? He says, um, but the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. What happened in Sodom? The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. It is not the armies. It is the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. But all along God allowed the beast to make war with his people. God allowed. Though God is seated on this throne, we just don't know why and all that. The world is still under the control of the evil one and God allows the beast uh, to make war with his people. So God's people will undergo persecution, uh, trials, tribulation. It's not something that has not been told to us. It's going to happen. But when the right time comes, uh, they will make war on the lamp himself. 
and they'll be destroyed. That will be the final war when they will fight with the lamb. How they will do and all, we don't know, but uh, they will fight with the lamb and they will be destroyed. Now, all this is a symbolism at its highest. Let's be very clear. Uh, we should not consider these statements as literal. When we read the apocalyptic narrative, we should not consider the statements as literal. Never shall we see the white horse. We should not imagine Jesus will be sitting on the white horse. We only know Jesus will be the victor. But uh, sometimes people will say, I had a dream he came on the white horse because they think it's a literal interpretation. But uh, apocalyptic literature doesn't give us uh, that kind of privilege to imagine that Jesus will be coming on a white horse or the sword projecting from his mouth. Imagine, sword projecting from his mouth and it is a double-edged sword. And when we see such kind of images, uh, what, do we, what do we say? We do have images like that in this country. And what do we say? But this is all symbolism. Uh, uh, this, is not, this is not the way it will be. Uh, the, descriptions are, uh, the descriptions are not descriptions of real occurrences. They are but symbols of the real occurrences in the sense the evil power will come to an end. It will come to an end. And the word of God will accomplish it. And Jesus will come again. And there's going to be a final battle. The message that John conveys uh, through all the symbolism is Evil will surely be overthrown. There is so much of evil in this world, so much. And we are waiting for this God to come again so that evil will be destroyed. And that will happen only when Jesus comes back. So remember, it's good to remember, the victory is won by Christ's word alone without any military help from the faithful. I said people have misinterpreted and they have gone in war and killed people. No, that's not what the Bible says. The victory is won by Christ's word alone. We have been called to preach the word of God. We have to be meticulous students of the word of God and we have to preach. In fact, people have misinterpreted to such an extent. If you read the Qumran scroll and all that, they will talk how the God saints how you have to take a division, how, how the you know, formation should be formed. You will be with this, you will have this weapon and all. That's not the way what the Bible says. That's not. Uh, those, those will be interesting, but it's not true. Uh, the final victory will be won by God and God alone. God often sends judgments to stop oppression. Uh, he sends judgments. Uh, he also sends judgments to avenge oppression. He punishes people. You cannot call uh, God as a God of justice and uh, say that uh, God should not punish the offense. 
then he cannot be a God of justice. The Bible clearly says God loves righteousness and justice. And if God loves justice, uh, you, you cannot say that you went to your court and you got justice. If the judge were to just not punish one who is guilty. Will you like that kind of court? Where you go to a court, you have been offended, you have been attacked and the judge passes the judgment. Yes, this person is guilty. Now he can go home. Uh, people try to misinterpret. Now, now, even when we repent, listen to this carefully. This is the gospel message. Even when we repent, it does not allow our sins to escape justice. Because Jesus paid that price on the cross, we are not facing that sentence. Jesus was sentenced for my sins. Jesus paid the price for my sins. It is like ju the judge imposes a fine. Say I impose a fine of uh, 20 lakhs rupees on you. And then the judge says, you can go free because I have paid that fine. And that's what Jesus did for his people. Now, those who have accepted Jesus, they have this blessing. But if those who, those who don't want to accept Jesus, then you tell me, what is the way? What is the way? If the judge says, I will pay the 20 lakhs rupees, you can go home and the person says, I don't care for you. I don't want your forgive your uh, offer. So what will happen to that person? He has to face the consequences for his actions. That is the gospel message. Gospel is there for everyone. Provided is ready to accept what Jesus did on the cross. And let's never forget, gospel is very precious to us because Jesus paid the price for my sins. All the punishment that I was supposed to face, Jesus faced. And that is why it is precious. Gospel is precious. I don't have to do anything because he has paid it on the cross by his life. And in this world, we will always have persecution. Um, we are probably the persecution has not touched the way people are experiencing, but let's not be mistaken as God children. I normally don't like to name the countries and all that. Uh, I don't like to do that, but I just want to uh, make us aware there's persecution going on. There is slowly awareness is there in the global community 
countries like North Korea, Pakistan, India, China, in all these countries, North Korea is, of course, you, if you claim you're a Christian itself is a crime. Uh, Pakistan, how the young girls are abducted and they are uh, married to Muslim men uh, so that you know, the Christian girls are abducted and there's so much of crime. India is no better, no better. And we are today also what happened to those nuns in a train. Uh, what is our role? Uh, people all over the world, they are becoming very conscious. People are responding. People, you know, believers are responding, saying that the first thing they say is we should pray. And there's a group which says that we should go with the lawmakers and we should pressurize them to speak to these countries. They say we should donate more and more to help people who are undergoing persecution. And there is also a kind of thought which is going on, we should give them weapons so that they can fight. But the last thing is not the right thing because that has not been granted to us to indulge in violence. But what I, what I want to bring out is there is an awareness. Now, just because it has not touched us, uh, in fact, one of the pastors whom we are supporting in Belgium, his church was attacked. Uh, his church was attacked. The cross was broken. Uh, we are supporting that pastor. Of course, that pastor was not beaten, but somebody else was beaten and he was hospitalized uh, in Belgium, in Gokart. Um, now, it's all happening. Will we wait till it reaches our door? Do we have a role in all this? Or we are comfortable? We need to think about it. As children of God, people are undergoing persecution. Those two sisters and two young girls, they were just asked to get on from the train. Can you imagine that all through their lives, they will never forget that incident? Of course, who cares? But as children of God, what is our role? Because we have not been attacked. Is there something that we are required to do in the kingdom of God? As I said, in the global community, the awareness has gone up and they are talking about India. Christians in other countries are talking about India and we living in India, do we have a role? And what is that role? We can pray. The least that we can do is we can pray, we can support the persecuted churches. That's a role we have. And we continue to witness. We continue to speak the word of God. That great commission is with us. Think about this. Uh, and that's what the book of Revelation uh, instructs all of us. Uh, if you have any questions,
Okay, if you have no questions, then uh, we have the last Friday evening devotion. Uh, that's day after tomorrow, March 26th. That'll be the last Friday evening devotion. You all are requested to join this uh, devotion. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Glorious Father, we look to you this evening. Thank you, Lord, for teaching, teaching us from the word of God. You are a warrior God. You are a champion God. You are a victor. Oh God, no force on earth can stand against you. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. At this time, we remember all the people who are undergoing persecution, especially in our own country. Oh God, in our own places as pastors and believers, they undergo persecution. Not only Christians, oh Lord, all the minorities, uh, so much of discrimination, so much of violence. Uh, we lift up, oh Lord. We pray, Lord, you will reign over this country in justice and righteousness. No one can give us justice, oh Lord. And we pray, Lord, the Bible says, ask me and the nations, your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your positions. And we cry out to you, oh God, above Father, give this land to Jesus. Let every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and every knee bow down at the name of Jesus. Oh God bless each and everyone who has attended this session. We pray, Lord, the word of God will produce 30-fold, 60-fold and 100-fold harvest. Bless us with good health. Bless us with your presence. Uh, bless us with the assurance that you are with us. We bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, unfailing love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit, remain with each one of us now and forevermore. Amen.